1: Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet.
0: Welcome back to TFR. Today, Ryan Gambala joins us. Ryan is the founder and managing partner at Pathbreaker Ventures, which invests in early stage companies building unique technology and IP in emerging areas of computing. In today's interview, we discuss Ryan's work in M&A at Facebook, the unique approach at Pathbreaker the must-haves that Ryan is looking for in investments, why hardware is not more capital intensive than software, his take on high-profile setbacks in the automation space, the current challenges to raising a Series A in 2020, the common benchmarks required for companies to raise an A round, how Ryan digs in with companies when it really gets tough, and we finish up with some advice that Ryan has for founders. Here is the interview with Ryan Gambalo. Of Pathbreaker Ventures. Ryan Gembala joins us today from San Francisco. Ryan is the founder and managing partner at Pathbreaker Ventures. Pathbreaker is a Silicon Valley based venture firm with investments in Diligent Robotics, Apprente, just acquired by McDonald's, and Edify, among others. Ryan began his career as a social entrepreneur, bootstrapping and co founding Hero for Children. The first nonprofit focused on quality of life care for children affected by HIV and AIDS. Prior to Pathbreaker, Ryan served as the corporate development deal lead at Facebook, where he was involved in the acquisitions of Oculus, Private Core, LiveRail, THAN, Lax, and Nimble VR. Additionally, he worked in investing and operating roles at Azure Capital and was VP of Business Development and Partnerships at Telly. Ryan, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me, Nick.
0: That was a mouthful. So give us your version. You know what's the backstory and path to venture?
1: Sure. I've always been a builder and started building with a mission in mind. I've always been interested in those that have uh, managed to make the world dramatically better in their time that they're here. And for me, that started in, in undergrad. I, I was involved in a nonprofit that did international work exchange. I worked abroad in Spain and Italy. I was really interested in foreign language and ended up taking that entrepreneurial experience. And it gave me confidence to be a social entrepreneur out of undergrad. I teamed up with a co-founder and we decided to take some international volunteer work that we had done abroad and channel those learnings into building a nonprofit. We grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And we moved back in. I moved back home with mom and dad, drove my 89 Buick and started a, a nonprofit called Hero for Children and it was bootstrapped. We started with zero. We built it over the course of five years full-time, built it to a million in revenue, uh, a staff of 10, and went to the private sector and raised capital to identify and shape and create programs that would connect volunteers from the community with children infected and affected by HIV and give them tools and in, in a set of experiences that could help Kids and adolescents and young adults deal with the emotional, social, educational, financial challenges that HIV and AIDS creates or worsens in their lives. And that experience was tremendously impactful on me and I think on a lot of people that got involved. And we, you know, from a business perspective, it, it showed me how powerful the relationship between capital and ideas is. And this notion that through the course of relationship building or people connecting, with a mission and a strategy, we could raise up $10,000 or $100,000 that would literally change the lives of hundreds of kids. So I wanted to understand that piece of startup creation and building from a more quantitative and analytical perspective. And so I went from Hero to business school and went to the University of Chicago Booth School of Business to you know entirely focus on learning the other side, uh, sort of the next side of the capital, the company creation equation, if you will, in venture capital, and that was my my chance to really dive deep. And I spent two years in business school learning as much as I could about venture capital, studying under great professors like Steve Kaplan and Scott Meadow, who showed both the sort of operating and research lenses of venture, and got a chance to do some hands-on venture and apprentice. And start learning seed investing while I was in school, and that was with uh, an angel network called Hyde Park Angels that you I, I think know in Chicago.
0: Oh yeah, very well.
1: That was really my foot in the door in venture. It was you know a chance to model term sheets and build cap tables in a very safe environment and work across you know 40, 50 different angel investors and sort of take my operating background and merge it with this lens of why companies could get funded, and what attributes investors were trying to find. And that turned into a sort of a good story to tell to Silicon Valley venture firms. I landed an internship out here with now a 20-year-old venture firm called Azure Capital. And that went well and turned into a full-time role. And that's what moved moved me west. I had never been to the Bay Area until business school. And a year after visiting for the first time, we moved here full-time. And I've been here... Now going on, uh, going on ten years.
0: Very good. Yeah, we know we know the Booth School well. We've got some interns from Booth. You know, you should try and get back for the New Venture Challenge, the NVC. There's a lot of good, good early stage startups coming through that program.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I'll be back actually for my ten year business school reunion uh, this spring. So
0: there you go. All right. Wow. So Hero for Children was that international or domestic?
1: Focused in Atlanta originally, and then we now serve kids six or seven cities across and six or seven states outside of the state of Georgia. So we operate a camp. I'm still on the board going on 17 years now of continuous operations and some great college students that are involved at the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech, and we bring kids together through mentoring programs, quality of life, and life skills programs year-round, and we operate the only camp. For kids affected by HIV in the southeast called Camp High Five.
0: Wow. Awesome. So, Ryan, were there any similarities or on the fundraising side in the nonprofit space as as you've witnessed or experienced in in venture?
1: For sure. I, I think, you know, as I was raising money for Hero, I got to interact and raise money from venture capitalists and in tech fairs, And that was really my first exposure to the word. And one of my mentors sort of guided me toward venture and said, look, you, you've you been making money and matching with you know, a, a business and very specific business goals in the context of nonprofit, but that's not that dissimilar from what a venture capitalist does. And so I think that that's definitely true that my comfort with fundraising certainly shows up as we work with founders that we support. And we'll dig in and make lots of intros, and we'll see that as where VCs can really help a lot, especially first-time founders that may maybe have built product and run large teams at large public companies, or been in academia building cutting-edge research, but haven't ever put those together in the form of uh, a startup, and, and need some assistance in both relationships and process. So I do think that. Early education in fundraising on the ground helps in how we partner with founders. and gives me a lot of, I think, empathy for how difficult that process is. You know, certainly as a as a GP now, you know, you have exposure to the fundraising side as well. But when you've got uh, as a startup, you've got customers, you've got lots of you know employees, lots of lots of people depending on you it's it's a heavy load to come out and just pound up and down San Francisco or or Sandhill Road raising capital it takes its toll so i think we definitely have helped our founders raise you know find their series a leads find their seed leads stepped up when things get tough and they need some additional capital or need to be creative on how they raise capital and i, I haven't thought about it this way before but i do think probably that that early education in, in the ups and downs of fundraising is has helped.
0: Awesome. So I used to work in m and I worked for a conglomerate called Danaher before I got into venture investing. And I know there's there's only so much that can be said about you know the details of, of deals and, and whatnot that you worked on. But can you talk a bit about your time at Facebook uh, working in M&A?
1: Sure. Sure. So I moved to Silicon Valley in September 2010 and spent three and a half years doing series A and B venture capital investing for a firm called Azure Capital. And part of that time was operating in the portfolio. So after nonprofit entrepreneurship and business school doing seed investing, I had a chance to hit the ground running and source a lot of deals, work with a lot of great founders and put capital work and then jump into the portfolio and operate closer to product and engineering and had been building relationships with large public tech companies uh, and soon to be public companies. And Facebook was was one of those companies that you know there were a lot of great people going there that I had gotten a chance to meet and was always been really passionate about Facebook's mission of connecting, making the world more open and connected. I do believe that's, that's ultimately a, a very positive thing. When I had done two stints in portfolio companies and done some investing at Azure, the opportunity emerged to sort of step outside the umbrella of the firm and... Join the corporate development team at Facebook as a deal lead and that was a a part of the spectrum of this process that is fascinating it's it's I think the most opaque the way I think about you know the this life cycle is is building funding and achieving liquidity and the liquidity piece 90% of it happens through mA and yet you know for a lot of very good reasons it's it's not super clear why certain acquisitions happen and, and why others that might seem obvious don't. And so that interest in the role coupled with being very passionate about Facebook's mission led me to join. And I spent time in a role that's a very horizontal role in, in corporate. I don't know. Certain companies cut this different ways. But you know here in the Valley, it's not uncommon for deal leads on a corporate development team to work across a variety of products. And engineering organizations within a company, yep. and the needs you know throttle up and down over time. And it's a role that requires a lot of listening and analysis, and at times uh, deal execution. But most of it is spending, you know, getting a sense for and understanding the company strategy, spending time with product and engineering organizations, listening to their goals and roadmaps, and then trying to build a landscape to understand who might be working on these areas in the context of a startup or academia, and seeing if there may be some synergies to explore that ultimately can be surfaced through, opportunities perhaps can be surfaced through a build-by-partner analysis where you might evaluate a variety of, of startups and then sort of also evaluate the cost and time to build internally or to partner to achieve a similar objective. And that was a great deal of the work and fascinating to get a sense of both sort of Facebook's view of the future relative to what entrepreneurs thought the future should look like. And then certain acquisitions, I got a chance to work on included Oculus, spent some time on the library acquisition and then helped lead deals in security and product design. In terms of function, you know, that, that was a period of time in 2014, 2015, where you know, Facebook and others were really starting to invest in, learn more about emerging areas of computer science. So I spent a lot of my time thinking about and, and learning about what could be possible with AI and machine learning, computer vision, VR, AR, uh, etc.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So uh, quickly, can you touch on the, the thesis at Pathbreaker?
1: Sure. Pathbreaker... You know, I think the fundamental belief of the, the firm and why I thought the time was right to go start this firm in this way is that we're, I believe we're living in a period of human history, unlike anything that the world has seen before. There are a collection of technologies that historically were not possible. They were science fiction because there was a lack of data and compute and infrastructure and components at a price that made sense that you could then take into products that historically it wasn't possible, but over the past two, three decades, the sort of sedimentary layers were laid to unlock a lot of these technologies. So you know internet connectivity in the 90s, smartphone in the late 2000s and early teens really drove supply chains and component costs way down, compute way up, and data exploded. And so these areas like artificial intelligence, robotics, computer vision, sensors, VR, AR, you know, could escape the lab, if you will, and could be productized to solve real business problems. So the thesis of Pathbreaker was to find highly specialized people that were experts in their field, whether it's you know, building something at a large company or, or at a university that had a very specific product thesis for integrating those technologies to solve a really challenging problem. Whether that was in the enterprise or the consumer, I'm agnostic. Um, but we're we're looking for people that are trying to swing really big, not building incrementally valuable things. But if they're successful, they'll be impactful across future generations.
0: I love it. I often find myself cringing when I hear other investors say, oh, that problem is too hard. Those are the things that i I'm just drawn to, like the harder the problem, the better. Just give me you know a give me a world class team working on it because those are going to be the most transformational technologies, and I would imagine you know great returns will accrue to the investor as well if if those are figured out now of course, the failure rates might be might be higher or or might not be higher in really difficult problems you know if you're if you're really supporting the best people, you know, to to go after those and, and figure them out.
1: I completely agree with you. I think, you know, it's it's really interesting if you talk to engineers and they're evaluating, you know, going to work for a phenomenal public company like Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and they're considering joining a startup, you know, difficulty of problem that they would get to work on is a key criteria. And often, <laughs> yeah, right. Founders, you know, and startups at the earliest days, you know, if they're they're tackling some robotic implementation, or they're thinking about optoelectronic computing, or DNA storage and compute, you know, these are step function changes in in the way the world will work. And even if it's you know a more narrowly defined problem that exists today, like out of stocks on shelves, or uh, inefficiencies in farming, or some supply system, you know, those those intellectual problems, the harder they are, you know, I have found that they, they tend to attract really, really talented people.
0: It's an amazing insight. I mean, it's so true too. Like I think about the, the most ambitious startups that we're working in, they just seem like amazing talent, engineers, BD, you know, customer success, you name it, but amazing talent is just drawn to them. So, and then, uh, you know, stage, check size, geofocus for you guys?
1: Sure, I believe great companies can be built anywhere, and won't necessarily look the same way when they come into my office or, or we get a chance to meet them. So I I maintain flexibility, but at the same time we know what we're looking for. So writing a two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollar check initially, very happy to be first money in. Don't have to be. We're focused on deep technology implementations and or deep people. So. Doesn't have to be a robotics or AI company for us to get involved. You know, if you're world class at what you do and your product is an order of magnitude differentiated and better than what exists today, you know, those are products and the types of companies that will get us excited. So, you know, the terms move around and what they mean, but pre-seed and seed is the stage that probably most aptly describes uh, when we invest.
0: You know, I came across this quote on your website. It states, we don't believe all great companies nor all phenomenal investments look the same early on. So we're flexible, realistic, and patient, solving for supporting the founders best suited for tackling the most meaningful problems. I'm curious, are there some commonalities that cut across all your investments or are there any must-haves that you, know, you look for that have to be present for you to really engage?
1: I think commonalities... Would The the one common thing you'd see across every portfolio company is this depth and obsession in the relationship between the people and the problem they're going to solve. A company like Mux, for example, that Excel led their A and they announced a large Series B last year. We invested at The Seed in 2016. And this team is a video engineering team that's building a set of video engineering tools. And they have lived and breathed video engineering, APIs, transcoding services, data services for their entire lives. They built a company called Zencoder, which was acquired by Brightcove. They spent years at Brightcove, rising to the directors and VP level, and then left to build essentially a video-specific AWS, if you will, over time. And. You know, talking to John and the MUX team, it's just so clear that if anyone is going to solve this problem, it's going to be them. They, they understand it in great depth. They can, therefore, establish a lot of trust with potential customers. They When they're pitching great engineers, leaving YouTube or Facebook or other places or just great people from wherever they come, you know, immediately you can see that this is a special team that is going to be able to tackle these really hard problems. That is common. Um, Superhuman is the same way. We, we were an early investor in Superhuman back in March of 2016. And Rahul and team have been in email and messaging and plugins for their whole careers. Um, Rahul started Reported, which was this beautiful Chrome plugin that surfaced a bunch of great content when you were sending an email um, and was acquired by LinkedIn was focused on email products and communication tools at LinkedIn and decided to take a swing at solving building the world's fastest email tool for professionals and power email users. You know, not not necessarily robotic or AI implementations are what we look for. We look for, you know, just depth of person that's going after something that to others might either seem like a niche and really hard or a massive problem and really hard.
0: Love it. Do you, would you say most of your deal flow is inbound or outbound?
1: I was looking at this data. About half of our deal, the investments that we did across 35 investments were from other VCs. And I thought this was interesting. It's about half of those were VCs that were investing in the deal and introduced us to to take a look at, I think they thought you know we could be a a, a value-added, longer-term partner for the company. And then the other half were VCs saying, you know, this isn't a great fit for us, but we thought you might like it. Maybe it's hardware, maybe it's too early. You know have the other half were deals that we did, but you know building our own conviction, not necessarily piggybacking off of a, a round that was coming together. Some cases, we'll lead those rounds and find investors to help founders you know streamline that process and and complete the round. Um the other forty percent of deals that we did were you know, I, I would say sort of in this individual category, whether it's founders and portfolio companies, or angel investors, LPs in the fund. And then the last 10% were accelerators, YC, Hacks, Alchemist, I think were the three accelerators from which we invested. Cool. Outbound, I, I'd be curious how you think about this. But, you know, one of the things I want to do more of is outbound deal flow. I think we we know what we're looking for. And, you know, now that We've been in market for a few years and, and have had some great companies you know, that we've been been able to work with. I think there's, there's an opportunity to do more outbound. But what, what about you? How, how do you guys have this inbound versus outbound?
0: Similar, right? So the, the outbound part of our business, we refer to as hunting, it's, it's less developed, right? We have a few strategies in place. We have a very lean team here. So we'll get internship help so like some Booth MBAs will come in and one of our last ones Stefano he put together a, an outbound hunting strategy and developed some deal flow inroads to some new markets for us which was great but we have not been as proactive there as we we should be so you know as I look across the portfolio I think 80% plus has been inbound related. So that's a mix of, you know, you get deals from VCs, you get founders that reach out directly because they're listening to the show or, you know, investors in the audience that are aware of startups in their region in their area. You know, we get a, a lot of inbound, so sorting through that has been the focus at least up until 2020. Interesting. So Ryan, you know, you've you've said to me that hardware isn't more capital intensive than software. You know, I haven't heard that before from another investor. Like a lot of people complain about hardware and the capital intensity of it. I've had some notable VCs tell me, you know, years ago, this is many years ago, but tell me, don't invest in hardware, Nick. They're all going to go to zero. Of course, like, you know, my two lead horses in the portfolio right now are both hardware investments that have grown quite large. But, you know, it was refreshing to hear you say it. And I'm sure there are many founders and investors that, uh, would you know strongly disagree with your position, but uh, why do you think it doesn't have to be more capital intensive?
1: Yeah, a couple couple reasons. I I think first of all, what is capital intensivity? So if it's defined by amount of capital that a startup raises or quote unquote needs to raise, gosh, there are lots of examples of software companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars in order to to see scale or arguably take take scale and take market share. At the same time, you see hardware companies doing that and and then you see all flavors. So I I think it really depends on time horizon and sector. My lens when I say that is I'm specifically thinking about robotics and enterprise robotics companies. So, you know, the seed rounds of today are typically somewhere between two and $5 million at least out here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Pre-seeds being, you know, from a few hundred K up, sort of to the one, one and a half million dollar range. And you can build first versions of enterprise robotics companies. You can build a batch of 10 to 15 to 20 robots, depending on what they're doing, with arrays of that size. Typically, with an enterprise robot, you are informing its development closely with a customer and you're doing a lot of customer discovery. And so you're building something for which there is a clear business problem. And you're sort of doing it closely with the user. The end result ends up being you know, a very high ROI on the product itself. And payback period, because component costs and design tools and prototyping tools have all become more ubiquitous and a lot cheaper to use. You know, you you can build a great piece of robotic enterprise hardware for you know between the range of a cost of a laptop to you know a small car on up to an expensive car. And from an ACV perspective, you know, the the other side of that is you know twenty-five K to hundred K per robot type of ACV and on. So, you know, you can you can start generating revenue fairly quickly. You can do this with somewhere but you know, south of five million dollars, which would keep you in that seed raise. And then what, what happens is because you end up with, you know, now a lot of these deals are being structured as sort of robotics as a service service deal. So is sort of the the RAS acronym, if you will, derived from S, you know, similar to SAS. And and what we've seen is non-diluted means of capital will start to emerge. So whether it's venture debt on up to more traditional types of debt because you have, you know, enterprise customer contracts and also collateral. So, you know, you can start to unlock non-dilutive mechanisms of funding that, you know, from a dilution standpoint as an investor can be sort of contribute to this, this idea that perhaps, you know, hardware companies don't need to raise as much money as people historically thought. Right. Do you think that the
0: time horizon to exit is longer for the type of companies that you invest in?
1: It's a good question. You know, my my time in Corp Dev MA has taught me that it's it's impossible to predict. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, Oculus when, was what, two years?
1: Oculus was about two, two to three years. You know, Facebook was not a likely acquirer on paper for Oculus at the time. And so, you know, I've learned to and will guide founders this way is to really not spend any time thinking about acquirers and for who might be the acquirer for your business, just focus on creating differentiated value, both in your team and your product, your IP, your customers, your data, etc. And if you do that, options will emerge over time. Sometimes those options emerge early. Donald's acquired one of our portfolio companies, as They were building a conversational AI to automate interactions in the drive-through, which is where about 65% of QSR, quick service restaurant sales occurs. And customer partner relationship turned into more strategic conversations that resulted in an acquisition in about two and a half years, which was fast. So I don't think it necessarily, you know, hardware or software dictates time horizon. You know, the stars really have to align, you know, for an m and event to occur more so on the side of the acquirer than on the startup. So in the, in the interim, in order to, mm-hmm. you know, just keep building optionality, you should just in my opinion, focus on you know, getting great people on your team, solving those business problems and, and getting as much scale and traction as you can.
0: I was just talking to to Kane Shea over at Root about this, but we've seen some recent failures or maybe not failures, but some setbacks in the automation and the robotic space. Um, there's been some high profile ones like Zoom Pizza and Cafe X. What's your take on where these companies went wrong?
1: Yeah, it's you know it's so hard. I, I I'm not an investor in those companies, so I, I don't really know. I, I I believe in the in the sectors unambiguously. I think the macro and micro trends around labor absolutely point to tremendous opportunities to use automation and personalization in the value chain of food. So we've been really active in food. I think made you know seven or eight investments. You know, from hardware to software, and so I think the you know, the sector that they picked is fantastic. You know, it could be that the companies are just in periods of transition, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was a great blog post recently, maybe it was Semmel shot Haystack, but some, someone wrote a blog post about startups are zigzags, not straight lines. <laughs> yeah. and, and this is the key, you know, there, there have been lots of periods of transition in companies that we now think of as massive successes. So Netflix, you know, has had to navigate Shipping DVDs and raising very few people wanted to invest in Netflix early in, in their time as a company. Salesforce went through a big sort of uphill battle, both with fundraising and, and finding their way. So, you know, I, I don't want to count Zoom or Cafe X out. I think they're they're great, really interesting product companies and some really talented people. Often, you know, if, if a company does struggle and they're in a great, in what seems like a great market, it's it's you know, perhaps you know not enough customer discovery. You know execution challenges, black swans. You know interpersonal dynamics. It, it can be any number of things. Yeah. So that, that's my view on it.
0: At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already sixteen thousand VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs, like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. You know, Ryan, you've had a number of Series A's, you know, here in the past month. It seems like every every time we connect here, you're dealing with a lot of up rounds. So clearly something is working at Pathbreaker and uh, I'm so happy for you. And uh, you're such a generous guy in general that it's, it's, it's really good to see the, the thesis working. Talk to me a bit about, you know, how hard it is for your portfolio companies to reach that Series A round. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of like a major milestone for a lot of us early stage investors pre-seed and seed um, yeah. t- talk to me a bit about that reaching reaching the a round.
1: Yeah. We had 12 companies in 2019 raise series a's and b's. Wow. And then we've had five so far this year already either close or sign term sheets for series a's. Awesome. And so this it's been exciting, you know, to sort of plant these seeds, if you will, and then you know see the companies really grow into their thesis just great execution on their part. But the bar is certainly higher, I think, in, in, for a couple of reasons. One, check sizes have gone up. So, you know, Series A's range from $5 million to $25 million. You know, the, the larger check sizes you might expect, I think, you know, the bar goes up. Another dynamic here is that, you know, venture investors only do one and a half deals a year, and at the Series A and B stage, it, you know some do more, but for their, you know, as firms have gotten bigger, they hire you know more partners, and partners specialize. And if you're investing over you know a three-year fund cycle of deployment, you know across you know ten partners, each partner does three deals, thirty portfolio companies. That's a partner per deal per year. And so, you know, if a founder is going on to raise money. They're one company of maybe four hundred that the VC will meet that year. A thousand they'll sort of tacitly look at, and so the bar is incredibly high. I think in that world, VCs want to make you know their investment in a company that looks like it's going to work and it's it looks like a sure thing. and so they'll they can afford to be patient at the Series A and B and wait until the you know the attributes come together. In a way that matches what they're looking for, to then pull the trigger and, and step up and lead their their big A or B. So I think those two dynamics are contributing to the bar being uh, being pretty high to raise an A or B now.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in this situation. I imagine you have as well. But you know, founders hit a wall. They're running out of money, having a hard time telling the story. Investors aren't aren't pulling the trigger. Uh, maybe there's some team challenges, uh, maybe there's challenges, you know, converting POCs or pilots to licenses. Give us some examples about how you have worked with and, and dig in and, and help the portfolio companies when, when it gets tough.
1: You know, I think my experience here helps in terms of having been an operator and a founder or living at home with mom and dad to, you know, series A and B investor to, you know, one of a handful of people doing acquisitions at Facebook. I've seen the cycle play out and the ups and downs. And so I'm a pretty steady person. And I think when things get hard, the, what founders really appreciate is calm and encouragement and sort of the ability to connect the dots to, and to have the conviction to say, it's tough now, but every massive company that we read about in the news or is public stock you can buy, and at some point, they went through something similar. And that's absolutely true, unambiguously so
0: multiple times
1: probably yeah absolutely and so the i think reminding founders that it's okay that part of their story includes some incredibly hard times and giving them sort of the freedom and encouragement to to be okay with that these are you know people that have typically won all their life and so they're not used to they're not used to getting a bunch of no's 30 people telling them no yeah they don't like their company or their idea they don't have enough traction i mean you know it's really tough, right when an investor says no, it generally means there's something is not enough, and that's a hard concept so what do i what do I do? I think you know I'm really encouraging and supportive to founders that you know one no or thirty nos doesn't mean this is bad and so we have a I think a great network of investors that we work with and people that sort of trust our lens and when things get tough, I clear my calendar and' we'll you know, open up the sort of spreadsheet of everyone that we, we like to work with and we'll make lots of intros. So, you know, to give you, a, you know, an example that has happened across multiple portfolio companies, but this process is, I'm, I'm sure you'll relate, you know, a company goes out to raise a series A and there's lots of interests, you know, they're getting lots of great meetings, but nobody ultimately sticks their neck out to pull the trigger and lead the round. One company in particular was a month away from running out of capital multiple companies in my portfolio have been months away from running out of capital and you know in deep tech in these cutting edge areas of computer science i think that's not uncommon and so you know clearing my calendar i spent a week making 30 very warm introductions very personalized introducing small funds angels going to lunches coffees drinks dinners with potential investors to follow up we were able to quickly raise half a million dollars to let the company accelerate into this round, and they went from being, you know, a couple of weeks away from running out of money to being massively oversubscribed on a a really large seed round. That ultimately, sixteen months later, became a massively oversubscribed Series A. Nice. on so to raise over twenty million dollars and is in a really great spot.
0: I'm curious, have you found any? Commonalities in like traction levels or milestones and benchmarks to successfully close that A round?
1: Yeah, I think this is such a hard question. You know, founders are trying to ask and lots of data points, lots of opinions here. I don't think there's a set of criteria that unlocks an A. It's YC just today published a guide to Series A. They have a, a Series A program, and uh, I was flipping through it and I think they make this point nicely, which is it can be story or traction. And often stories without traction can raise an a, but traction without a story is harder. And I, I think that's, I think that's very much true. You know, the types of founders we work with often have solved a really hard problem. Technically, they've made phenomenal progress on both an absolute and relative basis, building a robot that serves food without any human intervention or detecting falls in elder care without any human intervention—incredible technology—and yet when they go out to raise, they'll have these traction questions and then story questions. And I think that ultimately, you're know, matching a one to three million dollar ARR with a story of how that becomes a five hundred million in ARR. That will likely get you your Series A done. But a million to three million in ARR with a story that goes to six to 10 to 15 without sort of that compelling, overarching, this is how we're going to dominate the world, that's a, that's a lot harder Series A to raise. The difference might seem subtle, but it often takes a lot of effort for companies to get comfortable talking in terms of you know, global success and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue when they're, they might be at one today.
0: Interesting. Any advice uh, for founders that are considering MA and maybe, you know, for founders that have some options and are kind of approaching exit. You know, do you have any thoughts yeah.
1: there? You know, I think they're historically their advice has I've heard advice given to founders that it's important to avoid talking to corp dev and to play coy and you don't want to sell. And that's that's sort of the position you want to take to generate options. And I, I frankly I think that's uh, bad advice. <laughs> I, I think you know, if, if, if you think about corporate development and doing an acquisition, making an acquisition from a large public company or any company is a risky endeavor as, as you know, right It takes a lot of political capital to execute an acquisition internally. It's expensive. The data around success rates of acquisitions you know isn't great. And so if you combine all of those dynamics with a founding team that is being difficult to work with and hard to get information from, you know, that, that makes a deal much harder to execute. So what I advise founders to think about is to be collaborative and focus on trying to understand if you're aligned with a potential acquirer. Have strategic discussions with them about what are they trying to build? And how is that unique or different relative to what you're trying to build? Could the combination of what you're doing unlock extraordinary value together? Be the type of person that they could see working in their company. A combative, coy individual might, you know, there's there's room for some of that in the in the depths of negotiation, for sure. But, you know, when you're in that initial phase of trying to generate options, it's really important to be sort of seen as someone that it would be great to work with. If, if you're viewed in that way, you'll lower, I think, the risk of, of a deal um, internally, which will likely help present an option. I think you know tactically. This is something you know we frankly can bring, be helpful with and bring an understanding to the process. We do this for our founders if they're presented with this option of, of acquisitions. But I would recommend working with just one or, or two people in your cap table and keeping the fact that you're having conversations about M and A quiet. It's very easy for leaks to frankly kill a deal. So ideally, you know, if you have someone in your cap table who's been a deal lead in corporate development before, that can be useful but to sort of keep it tight and be really open and collaborative without disclosing your secret sauce or uh, you know giving you know the, y- giving your code base over for review <laughs> yeah, uh, right. i don't recommend that but if the acquisition happens you're going to be working together as the next chapter in your story for 4 years let's say yeah. and so it's really important to see to, to try to understand it beyond the monetary side of the acquisition, which your investors might be pushing you to mostly focus on, I think it's important for founders to really evaluate: you know, are they going to achieve their objective mm-hmm. uh, in the context of an acquisition? Because it's while well, you know this this term when I when I joined the corp dev side, I, I learned that this term "exit" was actually problematic. So, you know, if founders start thinking about an acquisition as an exit, it can be you know, it, it's not an exit for the founders, right? The founders are now going to work inside the new acquirer for the next, you know, three to two to four years, let's say, yep. sometimes less. So it's liquidity for sure, but, and it's an exit for your investors, but it's really just a continuation, hopefully of what you've been working on now with a lot more resources and a larger team and, you know, the weight of a larger company behind you to help make it happen.
0: Recently, I had an early-stage founder that's developing some really novel deep tech in this space, and uh, two CEOs of Fortune 100 companies reached out to him directly and asked for a meeting. That's a good sign. <laughs> it was a good sign. But both CEOs in the first meeting asked, you know, can you share your IP portfolio and all your, you know, patent applications? Unfortunately, the founder had, you know, the sense not to. But I was like, no, we're we're not going to do that at this stage. But happy to keep keep chatting with you guys.
1: Yeah, that you know, props to the founder for uh, for standing strong there. I think it can be <laughs> it's, if the founder is in a strong position and there's a lot of cash in the balance sheet, then you know, it can be easier to say something like that. It's when you know, that perhaps the team is mm-hmm. interested in an acquisition where they're more open to sharing these things. And then, you know, it can, sometimes it can be you know not super helpful to share a lot of information early on. But every, nice. every deal, every potential opportunity has to be considered, I think, on a case by case basis, because the dynamics change.
0: Yeah, we're, we're way too early for all that. But hopefully, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years.
1: I will say, if you've got CEOs reaching out to your founder and talking about M and A already, yeah, you know, that's to me that says hyper differentiation and <laughs> technology of strategic value.
0: Yeah, I mean we're we're super excited. We're super excited about the the IP they've developed, and just the team behind it is amazing.
1: Sounds like we need to share some deal flow.
0: <laughs> Ryan, what resource? You know, it could be a book, blog article, a tool, you know, but what resource have you found really valuable that you'd recommend to listeners?
1: Yeah. You know, anything that Mark Andreessen writes, I think is important to listen to. Mm-hmm. He's such a historian of what has happened in technology, drawing parallels between of lessons learned. You know, he sits on Facebook board. Mark, Mark is an incredible wealth of resources and the organization that he and Ben are building, you know, now their reach is incredible. And so the content that they're collectively producing, I think is really different and insightful. Earnings Calls is another one for me, I, I, I listen to a lot of earnings calls, I think it's one of the best ways, you know, to get a sense for what Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and others are, are thinking about and, and the Q&A sections in particular, I think you can get a sense for where priorities are and things that are happening internally, that you, know, you, you don't necessarily get in other prepared types of statements. Awesome,
0: Brian. What do you know you need to get better at?
1: Well, the joke answer is sleeping. So, <laughs> do, you your,
0: do you have your ring?
1: Uh, no, no, I don't. My, <laughs> we have two little boys, two little boys that are five and two, and um, my wife keeps telling me I need to sleep more. It, you know, I always answer that you know if you had a superpower, the sort of icebreaker question. My, my superpower would be that I wouldn't need to sleep anymore. Um, but I think I you know from a professional answer would be probably doing more outbound marketing and PR and outreach to founders. Now that we have, you know, I think a a great network of founders that can talk about how we've been helpful in our portfolio that we could do, start doing some more outreach and be a little bit more aggressive about, you know, finding companies.
0: You and me both. And then finally, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: Love connecting with people on LinkedIn. I still think it's a great tool and the messaging function has gotten pretty good. And then Ryan at pathbreakerbc.com.
0: Well, Ryan, this is this is a real pleasure. I mean, the first time we connected, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to work together. And thanks so much for just being super candid and sharing your thoughts.
1: Hey, thank you, Nick. This was awesome. Thanks a lot.
0: That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. Mm Thank you.